morning we are in the presence of Startup Royalty, so thank you gentlemen for, for coming along. Uh, so we've got Luke Anair from Safety Culture, so you may not know Luke, uh, he's based in Townsville. We'll ask you about that uh, shortly, and most of you will know Scott, so Scott, thank you for coming. This is your first Innovation Bay. I can't remember. It is. Okay. But you, you, <laughs> uh, Mike has spoken before, uh, I don't really know that, that was about 10 years ago. Um, I remember seeing him talk back then, I thought he was like 25 at the time, I thought this guy is pretty good, and I am inadequate. So congratulations on, on your success and, uh, and, and finding Luke. Um, so a bit of an overview, most of you know this, but I mean the, the, there has been a bit of an explosion in uh, startup activity in the last uh, little while and it seems to be continuing, so I mean just some easy metrics to look at, like the number of desks and good co-working spaces. So if you think of Stone and Chalk, Tyro, uh, Fishburne, or Azure Butter Factory, Tankstream, they're all expanding. So it's gone from roughly 350 desks uh, available last year to something north of 1,000 next year. Uh, and equivalently, once those guys come out uh, the other side of that, you're going to get some venture funds that are trying to invest in them. So if you look at the best venture funds around, so your Bioladors, Blackbirds, Squarepegs, Airtrees, uh, Rampersands, Roughly speaking, it's gone from about 250, 300 million uh, dollars under management to somewhere north of a billion uh, by this time next year. So it's pretty extraordinary what's happening in that. Uh, and for the first time, I think we're going to see, uh, you know, Blackbird was the first announcement, you're going to see Australian venture firms uh, being able to invest uh, check sizes north of 10 million, which has not really happened in the past. So I think that's pretty exciting for all of us. Um, so let's maybe start with the, the basics. Um, so Scott, can you give us the Atlassian elevator pitch? <laughs> Has anyone not heard the Atlassian elevator pitch? Um, what we do is we help teams of people collaborate. And we started uh, helping software teams to collaborate, um, help the work move around the software teams. Everyone knows that software teams these days involve the whole organisation. You know, if you go back 10, 15 years, Software teams were in the basement, reported the CFO, who kind of got handed a you know 700-page requirements document and went and did it. Uh, these days, you know, you can't build software with a 700-page requirements document. It's all fluid and involves the entire business. And so, because we built collaboration products that help software teams work with the rest of the company, uh, we actually found that our products get pulled, you know, into different departments as well. So we find a marketing department, you know, running a two-week, you know, Scrum sprint uh, to get their stuff done. <coughs> And so we find all the tools that we've built for software teams are actually being used by other teams as well. And that's the next big thing for us is that to sort of power collaboration amongst all uh, knowledge workers. Cool. And uh, Luke, tell us about safety culture. Uh, so our mission is to make safety available to every work in the world. And um, we do that through a mobile first um, offering where um, I think we come from an industry that's been legislative driven. Someone gets killed, they create legislation. <laughs> then uh, companies create policies and procedures and push them down on the frontline workers. So we've sort of tackled it from the other way and, and given people on the frontline um, the ability to be able to create a digital workflow and um, collect data across an organisation to ultimately give them real-time visibility um, in ways that they previously weren't able to. Okay, cool. All right, so before we finally get into the, uh, the, the guts of the talk, I do want to thank our sponsors. We couldn't do these events without them. Uh, and it is really important for us because, you know, I have a day job. Uh, Sue has a day job with us and we can't afford uh, to pay for Sue without the sponsors. So it's really important that, uh, that you guys are aboard. So uh, in no particular order, Deloitte is here from Deloitte. I know, uh, did I see Josh? 
And the other side. Yeah, all right. Anyway, thank you, Deloitte. You've been uh, a long, longest term sponsor. Uh, Gilbert and Tobin, did I see any of you guys this morning? Yeah. Morning. Uh, AMP, is Alfred here? Yeah, Alfred loves it, loved it so much he, he moved from uh, one sponsor to another in order to remain associated, so thank you, Alfred. Uh, Optus Innovate, what have we got here? Yeah, thank you. Ah, Rebecca, nice to see you again. Welcome back. Uh, and of course, Macquarie, so guys, we couldn't do it without your venue. Uh, Damon, appreciate that. Uh, so it's, it's great to be in this uh, facility. So, uh, yeah, thank you, guys. I really do appreciate that. Um, all right, so... Uh, Look, uh, we're here to talk about you. I mean, a lot of people have heard the Atlassian story, and you know, I do want to keep coming back to to scope and more with the, the adjunct to how we go involved with you. So, you know, give us some idea of the, the the growth metrics that you've had. I mean, you don't have to touch on revenue or anything else you don't want to, but you know, some some perception whether it's you know we talk about it as traction, so you know, growth rate, uh, number of customers, staff. Uh, Yeah, I don't know that our numbers sound super impressive compared to the numbers you hear from like social networks and things like that because we're more of a a B2B sort of play. Um, But we've had um, uh, over about 700,000 people download the app and and there's about 80-odd thousand of those are are regular active users that that use it about every second work day. It's a pretty simple pricing model. Yeah, so it's a freemium model. People can download. uh, I ordered it for free. And um, uh, then they can uh, collaborate and work in teams and hit the paywall at that point. So um, if they want to be able to bring data back to one central point or brand the experience so that they're, they're working their own brand experience, then they, they cross the paywall. And it's cheap? Yeah, so we just increased our prices actually, which has been, been interesting. Um, so we, we were $5 a month as a flat rate. Um, and yeah, exactly. Right. And, uh, and then we increased it last month to minimum $9 a month. Uh, with different offerings up to $18 a month and, um, and that went really well our, our research told us that we were well under what people were prepared to pay and, and so far that's, that's been the case Right, because there's an axiom in sales that you can never put your prices up but you're assuming that's wrong uh, it's, yeah, I think we had a fair bit of room that we could we could work within, so um, I think we've landed in the right place, yeah. Okay, so, you're, right, so basically you're happy with track, I mean, but in terms of user growth per month, I mean, is that something you ever touch um, on? Uh, we average about 10% a month um, in terms of our, our paid um, growth. Uh, I think we can do a lot better. Our, it hasn't been our focus really up till now. Our focus has been on product market fit and just iterating towards that. Uh, I think we've still got a way to go, but we're at a point where we have a, a sustainable model that, um, that can pay its way if we wanted yeah. to. And so you just raised another round of finance? Yeah, uh, 6.1 million, so the total now is about uh, 10 and a half and then two from uh, Commercialisation Australia, right. so about 12. Okay, and so what are you going to do with that money? Uh, we will um, start with a, um, a customer success team and, and some actual engagement with our customers. We really haven't gone out to them at all. So these companies that use it, like Tesla and SpaceX and, and um, all sorts of companies around the world, they've all just self-served, um, similar to what uh, Scott's model's been. If you can get Elon down for an uh, innovation paper, you can start. Keep your face. Uh, so, but, like, touching on that, I mean, you, you mentioned a couple of big US companies, so is that where the market is for you now? Yeah, so our, our biggest customer base is, is the US, um, and then it'd be uh, the UK and other markets after that, so um, definitely that's where most of our business is from. Okay, and uh, so you launched in, the, or the, I mean, I know you went back uh, 10 years, so you had the business from 
2004, but it was basically a consulting-ish business until 2012 when you released the app, is that? Yeah, it, it was, we produced um, safety documents for people to, to do high-risk activities safely in Australia, um, and we brought the cost down across the industry, and um, it was a very simple business, had a, a couple of staff, and um, a, a, you know, I used to get a lot more sleep then, so <laughs> in 2012 was when I ordered was launched. And, and if I remember the story, because I think I heard this before, but you launched in 2012, and six months later you had an offer to, to buy you, is that right? Yeah, we had a, a company from uh, Pittsburgh um, ex- basically want to merge with us or, or acquire us. Um, and so we went across and had some talks. But I think um, it, it forced us to question what our goal really was, and that was to solve a problem. Um, we weren't in it to try and make a whole heap of money. We were in it to, to solve a problem globally. And um, those sort of decisions got really easy because uh, that wasn't going to necessarily help us do that. So. Uh, you know, I don't know how many times we had opportunities to sort of merge or do something similar, and um, and they've become pretty easy decisions once yeah. you know that. I mean, fortunately, I think you didn't. Uh, and I think shortly after that, you met Blackbird. Yeah, so uh, Blackbird came to us. Um, we're actually a bit lucky. We got the first pair of Google Glass um, into Australia. And it turns out that the project on Channel 10 had been trying to get their hands on a pair for months. And so um, we're on there, got some exposure, and then uh, that was enough for Blackbird to make it all up to the garage in Townsville uh, on a rickety little driveway and and, uh, a bunch of... uh, clocks that we'd put up the day before on the wall to make it look like we're an international operation. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Rick only recently found out that we've just, you know, because we've been talking about getting these clocks up for a while, and, uh, and, and then when he was coming, he's like, we should put those clocks up. And so they put them up with double-sided tape, and so as he's sitting there talking, a bang, bang cock peels off the wall. <laughs> and he says, oh, your clock just fell down. And we went, oh, no, that hasn't happened before. <laughs> and, uh, it was all good. Uh, and, 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 and Scott, listening to, to, to Luke's story there, I mean, like when you reflect back on the early days of Atlassian, how many, what, what are the parallels between your early days and, and Luke's early days? And Luke's days now? Um, I'm not sure, some some, some not. Uh, I mean, the reason I'm interested in Luke undersells himself, like he was running a very successful business that turned over, you know, a couple million dollars a year. Uh, you know, selling, selling PDF documents in safety, right? And so, a really good lifestyle business where you know you're kind of small staff and you, you know you're making great profit, and then decides actually you know that's going to go away in the future. It's all going to be done on the mobile, and so Luke goes, actually, okay, well let's start a whole mobile business. Not that I know anything about mobile or have no technical background. I just know that it's going to be on mobile in the future. And so, you know, compared to me coming out of university with an IT background going to computing, which is a really easy, logical step to do with very low risk in terms of I could just go back and lose with my parents. You know, Luke took a much bigger risk of effectively not focusing on this business that's bringing in millions of dollars a year to then start from scratch in an industry you know really well, but with no domain expertise in terms of building applications and then have to go out and find university students and build out the first application and so forth. So I think the risk profile that, that, that Luke took uh, was way higher. It had way more domain expertise. You know, right. Luke's been doing safety for 10 years, and so that's appealing for, as an investor to someone that really understands the customer as opposed to someone that's making it up on the fly. Yeah. But, I mean, you had a day job. I mean, like, when, when people say, what do you do at barbecue, I'm sure the first thing you say is, I'm not I'm an investor, and that's not what comes out of your mouth. So you have to be fairly picky about what you invest in. So, I mean, what was it about Luke and his business that, that made you want to get involved? Um, so I'm an investor in both Startmate and Blackbird, 
and it was through Blackbird uh, that they, that, you know, Luke made the introduction, and they asked if I could spend some time with Luke. And as an investor, it's a very limited time that I can uh, spend on, on outside of my day job. So I want to spend that time where I can have a huge amount of value. And the things that appealed to me about Luke was, A, I understand a little bit about the sort of space that he was operating in because it's really helping teams of, it's teams of people collaborating around safety and its workflow and things like that, which I understand from my day job. Uh, and you also want to be able to give advice and people listen to it and do something with it. And there's been plenty of people that I've given advice to over the years where they come back maybe five years later and say, that was really good advice, if only I'd followed it. Uh, and, uh, and Luke you know, was like, actually, you give him advice and then the next week when you'd speak again or the next time you'd catch up, he would have done it, you know, improved on the advice and gone even further. And that's really rewarding as an investor to sort of help out in a way that gets listened and then actioned in a, in a really quick way. Okay, so you got to sort of try before you buy a free trial with, uh, with Luke before you invested. Uh, now, also, the, some of your early staff, uh, Luke, I think, were ex Atlassian, is that right? So you had CFO and then CTO for a while? Yeah, so um, Scott introduced me to um, John Bruce Smith, who was the CFO from uh, 06 to 11, somewhere around there. Um, at Atlassian, and so um, there's a lot of experience and knowledge that, that John had had from his time at Atlassian that was perfect for us. So um, he came in um, one day a week, he's still there part-time on that one day a week basis and, and just helped us make sure we had structures and things in place that were, 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 were working okay. Um, and then uh, I think it was about uh, middle of last year that um, we just, our engineering was just fairly unpredictable and would miss targets that we'd head for and all that, and that's when... Um, Scott uh, uh, wasn't head of engineering. What was Anton? He was... Uh, like, yeah, so he was like employee number four and, and yeah, and had been there the whole way. So um, Scott introduced me to Anton and straight away he came in and just, you know, um, delivered a whole lot of processes and yeah. systems that we didn't know existed um, that just made life a lot easier for us. So um, it helped enormously. So it's obviously helpful for you, but Scott, are you happy to, to, to act as that sort of talent conveyor belt to, to others? Um, yeah, at the time, both of those people weren't working at Alassian, so I'm not right. shopping out my current employees to my right. current investments. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure the rest of Alassian would be too so happy with that. sending them recruitment invoices. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's important. That, I mean, there's a lot of people, there's a few ex-Alassians in this room today, and uh, the, I think it's great for people, you know, Anton had been at Alassian for 10 years, and at that stage, he was divorced. What's the next thing that's going to get excited? Oh, you know... For him, there wasn't a, a, the next role that really worked for his skill set and for us. And so he looked for something else to do. And I think it's great if we're asking, we have, we have almost 2,000 people globally, but we have about 800 people in Sydney. And you know, even if we had industry-best turnover of you know, 8 or 9%, that's uh, you know, 50 to 80 people that are going to leave Alaskan every year. Hopefully they go out and you know, start, you know, work with startups or other companies that could benefit from that experience. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, Scott, you're also a busy guy. I mean, how, how do you manage, or I mean, how do you guys work together? So, like, have you got Scott speed dial and um, he picks up the phone when you call him? Or, I mean, how does that work? It's the bat phone. Yeah, he's <laughs> unbelievably generous with his time and, and very accessible. So, um, it's a little bit, um, you know, he's running this huge organisation and we've got this tiny little operation. So, it's a bit daunting sometimes, I think. But when I do call him, I usually have you know questions or something. But then Scott will come back and follow up with stuff, or whatever, or send something that might be you know relevant information or whatever in the following days as well. So he's still thinking about stuff, and um, and yeah, it's just 
sometimes we'll go for a couple of weeks and, and there won't be any communication and then it'll be you know more involved if there's stuff happening. So it just depends on where we're at, but yeah, it's, it's incredibly generous with his yeah. time. And, and so jumping back to the, the, the funding side, so your latest round was all based Australia? Yeah, it was, um, it was all from Australian um, funding and um, our existing investors, including Scott, participated as well. Right. Um, so, I mean, Scott, you, like, you have almost uniquely, I mean, there's a lot of startups out there that have this startup RR, we've got to raise money and think that's the end point that they go for, which is not necessarily the case. And I keep referring them back to Atlassian. It's like, you didn't need to raise money at any point. I mean, you did, but that really helped you accelerate the growth. Um, I mean, venture capital here, as we touched on before, you know, roughly a billion dollars coming under management. Not much of it's been put to use. How, how important is that to the, the Australian startup ecosystem? I think it's hugely important. And I don't know, I think the last example of not taking venture capital is what I'd advise other people today. I think there was a certain time and place. It was, you know, dot-com nuclear winter when we started a, a company. And so it wasn't like our competitors were getting huge funding rounds. Um, but these days, uh, you can see an environment where you can, if you're not getting funding, your competitors just raised, you know, $12 million dollars. That that's very difficult for you to compete with those those companies. So I do think that startups these days being heavily funded is actually is, is a huge benefit. You've got to spend it wisely, but I think that the funding uh, funding is not something you should be adverse to. In terms of the the Australian uh, ecosystem, there's a few things we need to do. Uh, one is have the talent in, in Australia, and so uh, I've been on the record that saying we need to change the education system in, in Australia to encourage you know STEM uh, studies uh, in, in sort of high school, um, way more than we do today, and in the short term we need to import the talent, um, 457 visas and other things, to, to establish a technology centre in Australia. Um, but the other side of things is it's great to have a technology centre, but then if all those startups need to go back overseas to get funding, then that's, that's a problem. And so we have to solve the funding environment as well. But specifically within that, I mean, let's like, so say, Luke, you know, a year from now, whenever it is, goes for another round, but it's a bigger one, it's, you know, 10 to 30 million, whatever the number might be. That, historically, couldn't be cut from here. Do you think it's, how important is the fact that Blackbird, and, you know, I know that some of the other big funds out there will be able to, to cut bigger checks at some point next year. You know, is that material that you can get your 10 million plus from here then, rather than having to go to Silicon Valley? Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, that will eventually keep more and more of the startups in Australia. Um, so, you know, at the moment, when we raise money from overseas, uh, almost all the rounds that we've done, we did secondary rounds, so then we haven't gone on a balance sheet, but all our employees have been around for 10 years to take some money off the table. Um, they've all been with, uh, you know, firms overseas rather than domestically. Um, but that hasn't moved us overseas. Um, so there's somewhat, you know, the, the, the more money you raise overseas and the more you have your investors over there, the more you'll be drawn to those markets. So if we can do that more in Australia, we'll keep more of the jobs here. And from a tax base perspective, if I think about it, there's a lot of things in the news around, you know, Google paying tax or Apple paying tax or all these things. I don't think that's going away because in a world of intellectual property, you know, did I make the profit in Australia or in the US or where my R&D was done or where my sales was done or where the headquarters of the company, like, that's not going away. And so if you look at the two things that actually can generate to a tax base of, you know, for a country, the tax base is the people that work there because they pay their income tax and they'll pay capital gains tax on any you know, sort of capital gains they make from their employee share option schemes. And there's the capital gains that you know, the investors make. And again, if those investors are in Australia and pay their capital gain tax in Australia, that's good for the Australian economy as opposed to for us Excel and T. Rowe Price, who you know, if we do well, you know, that capital gain will be over in the US. And so I think as an, you know, even as an economy, 
for that, we have to have the jobs and the sort of funding climate here to keep the tax base here. Yep. Luke, you get any comment on that? Like, are you happy that it's all Australian money? Yeah, I think it's been easier for us. Like, we've certainly met with, with um, USVCs and there's been um, a certain amount of, of uh, expectation that at some point you'll relocate to the US or move over there. And my answer's always been that if it makes sense to do that, then we do it. Um, I know Invoice2Go, Campaign Monitor and Atlassian have all had a sales and marketing um, team over there and that's worked well. And we may, may follow that model, but um, I think uh, you know, for us there hasn't been any huge benefit yet to, to jump on a plane and, and be based over there. So um, I think you know, these guys have proven that it can be done from here and, and um, once you've got that first one that's broken the four-minute mile, the rest can follow. So, so you're happy to... You're going to remain in Townsville? Uh, well, I'll, I'll be in Townsville. We've got more and more recruiting that happening in Sydney. So <coughs> Sydney's definitely where more of the growth is and, uh, and, and more of our leadership teams now starting to be built out yeah. in Sydney. Putting Townsville on the map. Yeah, we, we are trying. Did you not... <laughs> Uh, I got the MBM there. <laughs> yeah, did you not win some rugby league competition as well? So, anyway, congrats on that. Um, so, like, touching on government, so there's been a bit of change. I mean, we finally got a Prime Minister who uh, made some money from an internet business, uh, believes that climate change is real, and a few other things that intelligent people also believe. Uh, he's, he's appointed a 25 year old Assistant Minister of Innovation, Wyatt Roy, um, who appears to have uh, Sebastian from Blue Chile on speed dial, so he's. Uh, uh, is definitely getting involved in the startup ecosystem. There's this policy hackathon happening at Blue Chile this weekend. Again, maybe to start with Scott, I mean, how important is this? I mean, I know that, uh, that you're pretty passionate. I mean, we, we sat at dinner with Paul Fletcher where he had to toe the party line and talk about you know, mining and health and how important that was, but I don't think he loved it, but, and I know how passionate you are about it. So just give us your um, take on the new government and how important that's going to be. I'm already seeing the changes in the government. I, I chatted with, uh, I'm going into details, but they're looking to rebuild Innovation Australia um, with people that have much more sort of technology uh, company background. And so that's really encouraging. I, I, I don't think I'll have the time to participate in that personally, but uh, you know, there's things that they're doing now to, to rebuild uh, some of the government things around, uh, around the programs, like that Innovation Australia manages the R&D tax concessions and other things. So... I've already seen change in the very short period of time that uh, the Turnbull government's been in power. Yep. Um, and Luke? Uh, yeah, we're definitely... The, the ministers that come up and visit us um, already are, are starting to be more proactive and that sort of thing. Being a, a big fish in a small town, uh, we have the advantage of getting the attention. So um, we do have a bit of a direct link with particularly state-level uh, ministers. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they bring through federal ones. And, and I think definitely changing their focus and, uh, and have a better appreciation for what the ingredients are to make a thriving um, tech economy. So, yeah, I would agree. So if the two of you had one, one request, I mean, I know you both talked about the 457 visa, I mean, because you both rely heavily on, on that as a recruitment tool. Is, is that an area that you want to see made more efficient? The, I think the 457 visa process works extremely well. Um, to put it in perspective, uh, about a quarter of our staff at Atlassian have come, th- are actually on a 457 visa today. And uh, that's, you know, sort of, you know, hang on, that's a lot of jobs that could be, you know, in Australia, but I can tell you, if we could hire those people in Sydney, we would absolutely hire those people in Sydney because it's a pain in the ass to move people halfway around the world. And eventually they move home uh, if we can't convince them to stay. Most people will stay, they'll have well, children, they'll grow up. They'll in addition with that, we have about another sixth of our office that have been in a 457 visa that have become permanent residents. And so it's a pretty good hit rate to get people to come and, and stay. So I think the four, and we also see 
the US and other visa systems around the world. So the 457 is way better than the H-1B or uh, the, the other the visa programs we have to deal with. Uh, as example, uh, you need uh, uh, in the US you need to have a four-year degree and you can't substitute work experience for it. And so even if we've, we've acquired companies in Europe where we've wanted to move the people to the US and we can't move that company to Europe, even though I acquired it, paid a lot of money for it, the founders can't move because they didn't have a four-year degree, whereas in Australia we have that. So the 457 visa works uh, pretty well. Um, if I could change one really short-term thing uh, at a government, which I've been lobbying for for ages, is that small companies' R&D tax concessions should get paid quarterly as opposed to annually. I know that if you're, you're a startup in the room, you sort of have this cash flow crunch through September-ish, and then October, your check comes in, and suddenly like, it's party time. Um, if, we, if we could do that every quarter, um, that would make it easier for so many startups. And uh, there's a little bit of overhead from a, you know, more bureaucrats to administer that. But I think ultimately that would, that would be huge things for, for very little uh, overhead. I mean, if, if I had to do one big thing, it's uh, education. I think it's the long term. How do we um, change the education of, uh, of STEM subjects? And if I, if I walk through it uh, and, and think through computers, at least when I was taught, and I know some other schools today, is that computing is taught by the teacher really to fill out a favour with the principal who banished them to go teach IT. Because uh, they generally don't have any background in it, and uh, you know the kids know way more about it than the teachers do. And so I don't know that necessarily going and training 10,000 teachers to teach IT is the right way to do it um, over time, hopefully. But in the short term, that's going to take way too long. I think that we need to accept that some subjects may be taught outside of the curriculum system. Um, you know, using online learning, you know, for, for example, where we could get the best, the best teachers around the world to record you know, the lectures and, and things that people can do inside their classroom and sort of augment the classroom teaching with the best people in the world. And I think if we do that, we have a chance of, of quickly catching up. Yeah. And Luke, any requests for government? Uh, we still can't have a video conference call from Townsville, Sydney, because Sydney has got ADSL and it's terrible. <laughs> so, <laughs> if they could just change that, things would work better. Is that a true story? True story. Yeah, yeah. True story. Yeah, every, every day we have problems. Yeah. Uh, no, I do want to try and get uh, through to questions in a second. I'm just going to ask one more, one more question. Um, are we in our startup valuation bubble, Scott? I don't think uh, it's impossible to answer that one. Uh, I, I do, on, on the flip side, people sort of say, well, if it crashed, what would happen? Um, and if I look at the, at least the companies I spend a lot of time looking at, you know, sort of the unicorns in, in the USA, I think it's very different from last time around where if you go back 10 years, a lot of the, the money was self-reinforcing. You know, the startups were funding, you know, servicing other startups who were servicing other startups. And, you know, you know Cisco which survived, but, you know, a lot of their money was made from, from the startup ecosystem. And, you know, ads that were, you know, startups by ads and then, you know, funded the ad companies that then would take equity in the startups and it was this vicious cycle. Um, and if I look through these days, you go, well, Uber, you know, they've, they've sucked a, in a ton of uh, venture capital and they're spending a lot of it. But if they just said, if tomorrow the recession came and they said, oh, okay, we're just going to give up China and not worry about it, they'd be profitable, you know, in all the markets they're in today. And if I look at, you know, almost all of the companies in that category, most of them, you know, are spending huge amounts on growth. And so if the economy turned and there was a recession tomorrow, I don't think you'd end up with 80% of the, you know, the unicorns disappearing. I think they'd change their spending model, but I don't think we're sort of, you know, on the, on the cusp of a huge, you know, kind of crash in, uh, in startups if, the, if there was a recession. Yeah. Uh, and Luke, was your valuation reasonable? 
Of course. Yeah. <laughs> is, that, is there enough? No, I, I think. Uh, I think that. Hang on. Are you saying it's cheap? The, 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 the flip side of that is that the opportunity to reach many, many customers now is greater than ever, and to scale, and you can do that more efficiently than ever. So, the other side of what drives valuation is the fear of, of missing out, and there's been enough examples now where I think the investment community realise that if they miss genuine opportunities, then the cost is high as well. So, it, it's balancing that, and uh, yeah, we, we're somewhere in the middle. Okay, all right, look, we've got about 20 minutes, so plenty of time for questions. Let's, uh, let's get going. If you can hang on for a microphone, that would be useful because we're recording this. So, who wants to go first? Ah, there we go, gentleman at the back. <coughs> I, I guess the question could be uh, both, but mainly to Scott. Um, thinking back to the early days, what, what were the how did you grow all the main milestones to, to in the early days? Look, I think luck plays a, a lot into it when you're 22 and starting a company with no experience. Uh, there are a few things that we did that in hindsight were great decisions, like the technology platform we chose. We chose, you know, may seem you know, pretty straightforward now, but back then we chose Java, um, only because it had been taught in our undergraduate university campus. We didn't do some, you know, kind of big, uh, uh, big exploration, but it turned out that that language is now still around 10 years later and has a great community around it and there was a lot of open source products that, uh, or components that we could use that would make us uh, successful. So we chose that. Um, we chose to be web-based, which uh, if you go back uh, when we started client server, the web was really just you know, kind of coming about and there weren't many web-based applications. There was web-based you know, properties and websites and stuff, but there wasn't many, there was no Gmail, there wasn't things you'd interact with and we built a web-based application. So I think we made some careful choices of technology back then that are still helping us out today. Um, and if I you know, sort of played it forward now, it's like you got to look at what's the platforms that are going to be available in the future. Um, we, we also took it some advantage of you know, AdWords and go-to-market. We were different, so Google AdWords had only just come up. You know, we wanted to be one of Australia's first you know, uh, purchases of Google AdWords. Back then, completely mispriced. You know, stuff that was one cent a click back then is now you know, a dollar or ten dollars a click now and so you know there was a mispriced way of getting to market that we could again I wish I had way more money back then to spend on them uh, you know our ad budget might have been 50 bucks a week or something back then uh, so you know there's, there's a few things that you know at that point in time in that juncture that took <coughs> of that made, that made it successful um, and that's sort of different you know to all the normal yeah, you had good people and all, all that stuff alright thanks Jeff oh, oh here we go it's over here sorry uh, this question is more so for Luke, but we'd love to get Scott's like, high-level views on it. Um, how do you view uh, competitors and you know, working with partners that are sort of operating in a similar sort of space? So I'm thinking like in the US with Plan Group, um, which is like a white-contact construction safety app. Um, yeah, are you looking to partner with people that are doing similar things, possibly you know, merging and, and combining the process to, to sort of create a bigger um, offering? And then, yeah, how, how does your views you know, working with competitors and with competition? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, leveraging the connectivity of the web is key to growing fast. And um, and so, you know, Playing Grid are doing a great job. I think they've got teams of about 140 odd people over there now. And, and um, 
uh, I think the easier we can make it to integrate with other people and leverage customer bases they have um, and provide complementary um, products and services alongside what we offer, then um, that's absolutely part of the strategy. Uh, we've probably been a little bit slow. We, we got delayed by a year rebuilding our back end last year and uh, only released our API a couple of weeks ago last month. So uh, that's starting for us now. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think it, it's really important going forward. All right, we'll keep moving along. Yeah. So I've got a two T question, and mostly for Scott. Um, I saw your T-shirt at Lassine Foundation, so um, I'm interested to know a bit more about how that contributes to, or how important it is to you, and I suppose for Luke as well. How much, is it, how important is it to you to feel like you're making a difference um, to, to customers, to clients as well, and not just making millions, billions of dollars? Um, well, thanks for that, because uh, this year I'm trying to plug uh, the foundation and uh, let me walk back. So we've had a foundation for about 10 years at Atlassian, and it's been really important to us. We started it back before we actually knew we'd be successful. We, 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 uh, the Salesforce had a model where you'd pledge 1% of your equity, your employee time and your profits uh, towards uh, a foundation. And back when we, before we had, you know, our equity was worth nothing, we had no profits and we had no employees. We said, great, that's a really good model. It doesn't cost us anything now. Uh, you know, in the future, if we're successful, you know, we, we'll give back. And so we, we did follow that model well before it actually gave any returns. And so that's where the foundation came from. And if you add all that up, so far it's about 40 to $50 million that we put into the Alaskan Foundation, uh, which makes us one of sort of near the top of kind of private foundations um, in Australia. And, uh, and this year I actually said, well, in addition to Alaskan, because I have all this free time, uh, what, what other things should I want to do? And I wanted, you know, I, I wanted to give back in some way beyond something around work. And I sort of zeroed in on the fact that this foundation's been really successful for us, but I go to other companies and not many other companies have sort of a, a structured philanthropic effort. And so uh, at the start of this year, I, I founded a, a foundation with pledge, called Pledge 1% um, with Salesforce.com. When the foundation's sole uh, mandate is to get other companies to sign up to pledge 1% of their, things, uh, their you know, employee time, equity, or, or profits. And with that, um, our goal was to have 500 companies sign up, and we're about 460 or, or so. Australia's actually drastically underrepresented from what, what I wanted. Um, but the idea is that if companies can sign up, now we don't tell you where that money has to go to, you know, put it to whatever your favourite charity is, um, or wherever your, you know, your, your cause is. Um, so if anyone wants to talk to me later about that, I'd love to, to, to evangelise that, because I think it, it's been so successful at Atlassian. We have our employees, it's one of our top three reasons people say they join us, is that they love the, the philanthropy or the corporate responsibility that we have at Atlassian, and that's more pronounced if you will get younger people that join Atlassian. Um, and so if you don't have something at your company, you're competing with other companies that do have a program for talent. And so there's, sort of a, there's actually bottom line benefit of kind of having corporate responsibility. And uh, if I think through it, if you go back, you know, 20, 30 years, you know, there were many more institutions outside work. You had, you know, stronger churches, you had stronger um, community groups and, and, and things outside of work. But with, you know, everyone's got a mobile device in their pocket and work now bleeds more through everyone's lives... So work's taken on kind of a larger percentage of people's lives. I think it's up to us to then give back. You know, people have a sort of a need to give back, and it's great that we at Alaskan can give our employees a outlet to do that. Um, and so many employees that would 
they're like, I want to give back, but you know, I don't have time or I haven't thought about it. If you give them a, a structured outlet to do that, um, they're, they're really surprised with what they can do. And so um, we feel like we've given, uh, we've given a lot back that way. And Luke, are you doing the same program? Yeah, we signed up to the 1% pledge um, with uh, <coughs> I did, and um, it's a conversation we're still going to have with investors if we're going to do it company-wide, but um, we've certainly, uh, I've committed, which is a majority shares of it. Yeah, I think it's great, so good on you. Um, Who's got a, there's a mic running around to it. Down there, left. Ian. Oh, oh Angela. Yeah, hello. Um, thank you so much, Lou, um, and Scott, for thinking, talking about two things very close to my heart at the moment, which is skill shortage in Australia, um, and also STEM. Um, I run digital um, at the ABC, and I just want to lean forward in this moment and say that uh, we have a, a very large slide for ABC Splash for the STEM section where... Um, yeah, thousands of digital resources. I think this is a very doable um, uh, uh, problem to solve, a very, a very achievable one, very easy, we have mass distribution already. So with you and other people in the room, you know, we're looking to partner to solve this problem. And I think it's something that the tech and the startup community together with media companies could crack very simply and easily. It's very, very cheap and very cost effective to film the best in the world and put it up on very simple, you know, we've, we've got the distribution to do this. I hope we can do this. If we do it together as an industry in the next year or so, because we talk a lot about it, but I think we're down it now. It is getting to be a serious problem in the economy, and the earlier we start in cracking this one, I reckon, the better it is for, for society. But great. Come grab me so, later. Come grab me later. Yeah, I think yeah. anyone else in the room, I think it's just a great collaboration problem to solve. And yeah. I reckon we all care about it, so let's, let's just do it. And is everyone aware? I mean, does anyone's kids use Mathletics? Um, yeah, is everyone aware that's an Australian company that's actually three P learning? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, a lot of people don't, don't realise that we, you know, we're doing world-breaking stuff, and you know, the largest math sites in the world is uh, is an Australian company. So we have, I think, we have the capability here. It just needs to be coordinated. All right. Cool. Thanks, Ange. Uh, who's got? We'll come back to yeah. to you in a sec. There's a mic rolling around somewhere else. No. All right. Over here. Sorry. Thanks uh, for Luke. What's your uh, most successful strategy around at the moment for attracting new members? What's really worked for you? New team members? Uh, no new members to the site. Customers? Customers, yeah. Uh, what attracts them? So 47% of our customers are word of mouth referrals. Um, and I think we've done a fairly ordinary job of, of sort of marketing and spreading that. We've really put no effort into that. So um, I think, uh, you know, Certainly the reviews in the App Store and things like that have helped us pretty early on. As we're sort of moving into a growth phase now, uh, we'll have more tangible uh, processes for doing it. Um, but I think uh, yeah, it, it's the product itself is probably the biggest thing that, that pulls people in um, rather than this sort of wrapper of sales and marketing around it that tells everyone it's good. So um, that's, that's our, our biggest lead that we've had to date. Uh, certainly the people understanding um, that we're not a top-down play, that we are empowering people on the front line or a middle manager, um, helping them succeed is, is now our goal going forward. So just two weeks ago we had um, Shirley start, where she's here, um, start as a customer success team to build out processes where, you know, when Starbucks had 40 users, we actually contact them and say, hey, how can we help you? Um, what are you doing? That kind of thing. So that's the expansion model that, that we're, we're going forward with. Um, but it's early days and, uh, and we've only just started that now. All right, thank you. All right, anyone else? Come on, we've got two of the best startups on the planet here. 
And probably uh, for, for just a set of the mic, there we go. Thank you. Uh, for, for Luke, I think famously you guys are very well known for a go-to-market model without a sales team or sales infrastructure. And, and sorry, for Scott. Um, is that model going to change? Do you for both of you? Do you see that changing? Uh, to follow on from Luke's point, uh, you know, you've got eighty thousand people that use the app every other day and really spent no money on sales and marketing. And I think that goes to show that people will search out uh, a solution, you know, for, through word of mouth if it's the best solution. And if I go back ten years, I think we were pretty pioneering in saying, actually, as a software company, we put a lot of money into building great products and underinvest in sales and marketing, and you know, let digital distribution take care of the rest. And so I think that's if you look at almost all the apps that uh, you know are all the leading uh, apps in each category. These days they are because they're generally the best app, not because they spend the most money in sales and marketing. So I think that's just a general industry property you're going to see going forward. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you can't optimise uh, around that. In Luke's case, you know, taking a 40-person, you know, 40-seat uh, at BHP or at Starbucks and turn that into tens of thousands of seats um, is something I still think requires a little bit of hand-holding, um, especially when you get to enterprise level where often the salesperson is just navigating BHP's internal procurement process to make sure that it can, uh, that can happen easier. So I think there will be a, a need for that. Um, I think it's decreasing over time, uh, the number of people you need to throw at that, and you can throw automation. So we do a lot of stuff where instead of having people, um, we actually run experiments where we have people versus machines, uh, where we have people calling customers and machines you know, sending emails or drip feed or you know, the right prompts and seeing who wins. And usually the people win by a slight margin, and then you look at what they did differently, and you roll that into the machines and constantly battle one versus the other. The machines are probably a bit cheaper. Machines are a bit cheaper at the moment. Yeah. Uh, Ari? Yeah, this question is more for, uh, for Luke. So you talked about expanding, and you're going from, let's say, Australia's a billion-dollar market into a trillion-dollar market into the U.S., what a, as an Australian startup, what do you think are some of your biggest challenges in terms of setting up landing in the U.S. and having help from Scott and his team and also forecasting how much runway you need? Uh, well, time zone is probably the most obvious one. Just just by physically building out a team over there, you're then on local time zone. And just also the nuances, like we, we treat every customer, anyone that comes in contact with our support team, uh, you know, I constantly iterate that we need to win one customer at a time. We need to deliver great service each time. And I think, um, you know, if you look at some of the best executions around the moment, Uber, for example, you know, they've got offices in every, every, every city they operate in. Um, we probably don't need to go to that level, but by certainly having people with, you know, speaking the, the native accent and that kind of thing helps deliver, um, you know, greater rapport and things like that. So that's the challenge for us um, uh, in terms of building out a team over there. Uh, and then at the moment we're looking for someone to really lead our marketing efforts. We haven't got anyone who's built uh, a tech company before or led the, the growth of a marketing team through that so that's something we're also looking for through the US as well um, if we can't find it here so that's probably the main main two structure and things like that I think there's enough experience around where you can set up entities and structures and, and that sort of stuff so that doesn't they don't seem to be as big of problems as perhaps what they were if I, if I can add to that one of the things we we set up offices around the world probably eight or ten I think now and the number one thing for setting up in your office is just the leader that you put on the ground. Uh, we've been lucky in some areas where we've had amazing leaders and they've really set the tone and the culture and attract great people and eventually, even if they step out, like they've, they've, they've created an incredible environment. And we've had other ones where we haven't had a strong leader and it really comes down to that first person you put on the ground, whether you transplant them is, is one alternative um, or you know, what we've done is often put a transplant 
who can take out our culture and way of getting stuff done because they know the people on the inside and you know how to get work done with someone locally who then understands that you know actually which university you go to in the United States makes a big difference, whereas in Australia we don't give a shit which university you go to, right? So there's just local things you need to understand. We found that marriage works really well. All right. Anyone else? Yeah. Next. Um, hi, this is uh, probably more for Scott, also Luke. Just a question, we've got um, a big change in government, there's a lot of exciting things potentially happening. Um, one thing is about the domicile of intellectual property, and is there a possibility that we can push Australia such that it becomes a much better place to keep IP? Because I know that Singapore, just three months ago, launched a huge paper uh, which is all about trying to make sure that people know that Singapore is a great place to house IP. So is that something you think we could get behind and, and get some change? That's a, a very touchy subject um, in terms of just there's no right answer. Um, and you know the OECD re- released their, I think it's BEPS, um, Base Erosion of Profits or something like, their, their recommendations just came out and I, I, I glanced through them, but they really depend on every country effectively not undercutting every other country. And I know that, you know, Ireland became big for European bases by effectively saying that we'll drop the tax rate for national com- uh, companies and they'll move a whole bunch of workers there and we get employment and that's great. And then a couple of years ago, the, you know, kind of England decided, shit, we don't, we're losing a lot of great companies to Ireland. So England dropped their, you know, tax rate for, you know, international uh, companies moving there. And if you do that merry-go-round, like eventually there'll always be someone that undercuts someone else uh, around the world on the, you know, kind of the to put your intellectual property somewhere. Um, so I'm not sure that's necessarily maybe it's a, a race we have to get involved in just because we can't be non-competitive. But I just don't see that as a winning strategy in a way that will beat some other country. You know, eventually someone else will just drop the tax rate further. I think what happens is that you really want to attract the, the talent and the capital to come here because they're the things that are sustainable over over the long term. Um, and Singapore is a very different economy. Like I've got some friends that live over there, and you know the, the tax rates are, are ridiculously low. Um, you know, but they get a lot of their money back from land taxes and other things because effectively they really just tax the the, the land. Um, so it's just it's a very skewed economy because it's such a small uh, country with very low in- infrastructure, and they import a lot of effectively it's not slave labour, but you know a lot of people from Malaysia come across, and so the market dynamics are very different. Um, and what they can do on the tax systems and then the country where Australia could. And I'd add to that, I think innovation is probably the best defence um, and creating that environment that's, that really supports the innovation is, is probably the key. And you, know, you look at Nordic countries that have very high tax rates uh, and you've still got great great tech companies come out of that. So um, I think that's our best defence. Okay, man, no, nobody's asked this yet, but and I'll ask in a way that we probably can, but uh, allow you to answer, but... There's rumours of an Atlassian IPO. Mm-hmm. How important is the jurisdiction of that to your decision? There's been rumours of an Atlassian IPO for a, a long time. Um, uh, if, we, if and when we list, uh, it would be in the US. Like, it doesn't make sense for us to list in Australia. I think we'd be a Fortune 50 company or something, like, and by far the largest tech company, and it doesn't make any sense for us to, to do that in, in Australia. I'd love a case in... 10 years' time, where we'd say that would make sense, but for day, today it doesn't make sense for us to do that. Right. Okay. All right, one, uh, I'm running short of time, so this with the last question. Yeah, sorry, given uh, these questions, given what you know now, and particularly with um, the rooms that you're just talking about, what time would you do, what, what would you do differently with your employee share options plan? 
So, so, so the employer share option schemes are way better than they were 12 months ago. Um, I think most people in the room are probably aware of you know, how, how that went down, is that you, know, you go back a couple of years, I think it was the Labor government decided that, I think Macquarie Bank employees actually, so you know, but like effectively execs at you know, sort of bricks and mortar companies were you know, shoveling a lot of their compensation through share schemes and paying lower tax rates, and then the Labor government cut down on that, which had the unfortunate side effect of effectively making it impossible for startups to give uh, options to their employees. And then uh, both sides of, the, of government then said that was a crazy thing, and then we just had the changes that came in actually three months ago, um, July the 1st. Um, in my opinion, I think they were really complicated changes. Um, as an example, Luke's company can't participate in them because he's had a company that's more than 10 years old because he's been operating it for a while. And you're like, well, that makes no sense that, you know, that Luke's company shouldn't be able to access the employee share option scheme program. Um, Alaskan can't do it as well. Like, so there's, they, they put all these restrictions around it. Um, what I would have done if I'd had uh, the choice um, would have been make it way simpler. That if you want to pay tax up front and, you know, for your employee options, you can get it on your capital gains discount rate. And so, uh, you know, employee could choose to pay their tax now and get a capital gains discount. Or if you don't want to pay tax up front and you just want to get... You know, it, 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 uh, you don't want to sort of have that risk up front. It just gets paid through your income tax and not in capital gains discount, and so which is the way it works in the US. Um, and so, if you had that choice at any time, you could pay tax up front and switch from one to the other. We wouldn't care which company, you know, like or what size or scale or point in time or any of those things. Um, we wouldn't have worried about that. And so, um, again, I'm still hoping that we'll simplify some of those laws. It was probably unlikely uh, in, in the short term. Um, and so. Yeah, I mean, we would do whatever you know, whatever we have to do today to fit within the letter of the the new laws um, that are out. Okay, and look, well, ours is terrible. We've got this uh, loan share agreement. I think Nick was giving us advice about it the other day, but you, we're giving people shares and then giving them a loan to buy those shares, which best over four years. And the whole thing's just—it's very complicated for employees to get their heads around. And uh, apparently, we're stuck with it. So, right. um, I'd love love to see a simpler way, but uh, that's the state of affairs at the moment. Okay, so. but from your side, employee shares are important. Do oh, I absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, that's that's the standard. Um, Okay, we shall call it a day, so let's give these guys a round of applause. Thank you.